0: Hello, and welcome to the latest ClearBridge podcast. This is Jeff Scholze, CFA and investment strategist at ClearBridge Investments. ClearBridge is a global equity manager with $146 billion in assets under management committed to delivering long-term results through authentic active management. We integrate ESG considerations into our fundamental research process across all strategies. We are closing in on the end of a historically difficult year for equities, which have been buffeted by the highest inflation in a generation and an equally aggressive response from the Federal Reserve. Treasury yields have soared more than 250 basis points to over 4%. Growth stocks, whose earnings are discounted well into the future, have borne the brunt of the pain with the Russell 1000 Growth Index down over 30% year-to-date, compared to just a loss of 11% for the Russell 1000 Value Index. This marks a sharp reversal for the mega-cap growth stocks that led the market for years, including most of the COVID-19 pandemic. But the unique nature of the pandemic and the unprecedented policy response have caused a disconnect as growth companies grapple with recession fears and a pull forward in demand that has clouded earnings visibility. To help us separate the short-term pain of normalization from the secular trends growth companies are leading, I'm pleased to be here with Naveen. Jason Durham, ClearBridge's Senior Analyst for Internet and Media, and Hilary Frisch, Senior Analyst for IT Software. Naveen, I believe this is your first time in the podcast booth, so welcome. And Hilary, I know you've chatted with us not only in our old studio virtually, but now the trifecta here in our new digs off of Fifth Avenue. We'll examine how the bear market has impacted the current investment landscape for software, internet, and similar growth stocks in today's podcast Could earnings resets boost technology? Naveen and Hillary, uh, thank you very much for joining me here in the podcast booth. It's great to see you both in person. Thank you, Jeff. Glad to be here.
1: Thanks, Jeff. It's great to be here, too.
0: And I think that this is a very timely podcast for our listeners. Um, Growth stocks have had a very difficult 2022, to say the least. And I saw an interesting statistic this morning that I thought was jaw-dropping. The XLE, which is this massive energy ETF, And a five-year total return basis is almost even with the QQQ, which is a proxy for the NASDAQ kind of jaw drop if you think about that. And I really get excited about areas of the market that have seen some pain because generally speaking, tend to be really good buying opportunities for longer term investors. And obviously, the pain has been front and center here as we've moved through the third quarter earnings season. You've seen some earnings resets. That's been a story over the last couple of weeks. So I want to start off with you, Naveen. Talk a little bit about the resets that we've seen, and primarily in your areas of focus, uh, the consumer-oriented companies and the ones that you cover more directly.
2: Sure, Jeff. Happy to. So as the Internet and Media Analyst, I cover a number of consumer-facing Internet companies, as well as businesses that are indirectly tied to consumer spending, such as uh, sectors like online advertising. So I see three forces that are primarily driving earnings resets in my space going into 2023. First, a number of internet companies over-earned during the pandemic when the majority of economic activity moved online. We were all at home during lockdown. This creates a high prior year base to overcome all the way through early 2023. So so inflated earnings get very hard to grow off of that base. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, and, and this happened for two years, and now we're just <laughs> starting to come out of that uh, very high earning period. Secondly, consumer discretionary spending is coming under pressure. Uh, And uh, this is mainly happening due to high inflation, which is also leading to declining savings rates. The third factor is the sector, technology and internet. Companies tend to have high incremental margins. And this is great in periods when growth is, uh, is much above average, where- High inflation, high nominal GDP. Exactly. But this also cuts both ways, and it creates margin pressure when top line slows. So if we take Google as an example, we can see all three of these factors at play. I actually estimate their search business to grow 3% next year, which on the surface looks like a very low rate of growth. But what this really represents is a four-year CAGR of 17% between 2019 and 2023. Wow. And this is actually faster than what the business grew back in 2019 when it was a much smaller business. So that's really the, the hurdle that companies like Google have to overcome. The good news is that estimates for 2023 have already started to come down. We saw a round of estimate revisions uh, prior to earnings, and we definitely saw a lot more estimates being cut uh, after the earnings season that we just went through. And this is in addition to the sizable multiple rating, we've already seen due to rising interest rates. So uh, what this means is that we actually have a pretty good setup for high-quality compounders in the internet space. And as you know, stocks typically turn before the economic data actually does. So as a growth-oriented investor, I would actually be very interested in finding great opportunities in this market.
0: Now, you you mentioned the pull forward of demand. Obviously, we've seen this in a lot of areas. Uh, One area that you saw a lot of pull forward in was corporate IT spending. Um, Hillary. obviously, this is ground zero for the areas that you cover with software and services. How has it impacted the way that you're evaluating things?
1: Sure. Thanks, Jeff. Well, within software services and even enterprise tech generally, as Naveen mentioned, the flurry of activity over the last two years certainly created tough comps for just about every every company out there. And there were pockets of pull forward, primarily in the consumer-focused industries such as video games, e-commerce, etc., also among vendors that sold a lot to private tech companies and startups, which are under a lot of pressure now. But there's also been pull forward in some of the areas of the enterprise. Video collaboration is an obvious example. Um, there were also parts of the front office applications complex which have been affected, e-signatures, et cetera. At the same time, there are other subsegments of enterprise which saw deferrals due to COVID. Enterprise resource planning applications are an example of that. Um, And I would say there are still other areas which saw resilience during COVID and that resilience continued after COVID. So security, hyperscale cloud environments are examples of that. Now, with the macroeconomy teetering, investors and companies are adjusting their expectations and their estimates downward. Um, But the underlying trends remain largely intact. It's just that these will manifest at a more measured pace over the intermediate term. Um, those trends, by the way, continue to be things like digital transformation, digital enablement of all customer touch points, AI analytics, customer experience, automation security, improved DevOps, et cetera, et cetera, and so on.
0: So, from what I'm hearing, it sounds like it hasn't been lost, it's just been deferred out a little bit until visibility is there for the economy and earnings and whether or not they want to spend their cash on these initiatives that will eventually be spent. So, the opportunity set hasn't been changed, it's just been deferred.
1: I'd say that's a great way to put it, Jeff.
0: Now, we touched on this, but I'm going to talk about something near and dear to my heart, uh, which are the macro forces that obviously is affecting this space, high interest rates, inflation. Um, really been punishing a lot of stocks indiscriminately, but nowhere for more than what we've seen in IT and com services recently. So, thinking about this indiscriminate selling, these macro forces that we're dealing with, how do you comb through sell-offs like this and and maybe identify the best growth franchises as we, as we come out the other side of this? Navina, maybe I'll, I'll start off with you and and what you're seeing in in the internet and media space.
2: Sure. So to look for stocks or to find stocks that can outperform through the current downturn and over the next business cycle, I look for companies with primarily three characteristics. Strong pricing power, reliable cash flows, and prudent management teams. So let me elaborate on what each of those mean. Pricing power really stems from a durable competitive mode, which in internet land is often associated with being a market leader in an emerging segment. It can also come from uh, network effects in the business, which I often see with the marketplace businesses that I cover. Second, on uh, the importance of cash flows, as interest rates rise and funding becomes less abundant, I place a high priority on businesses with current cash flows, as opposed to those that are project uh, have projected cash flows years into the future, as well as low levels of leverage.
0: So, So the baby things, right, that aren't going to be profitable anytime soon, have cash coming in.
2: Exactly. Yeah. And uh, we've actually seen this uh, play out where a number of companies have actually gained share over the course of the past year as their unprofitable VC-backed competitors have pulled back on spending. A good example here is Uber, which uh, in its delivery business competes with unprofitable startups like GoPuff or Getter. And uh, they've actually seen competitive intensity get a lot more rational, And this, in turn, has led to uh, fewer customer incentives and led to better profitability in the business.
0: And I I think that's an interesting and underrated dynamic, as particularly with all the wall of money that has flown into tech, you know, if that wall of money is no longer there, the incumbents, you know, the ones that have the established moats are going to be able to continue to, to build that market share.
2: Exactly. Yeah, this is where sound unit economics, better cost structures really shine through, and also areas where um, bad practices like using stock-based compensation excessively actually separates the strong companies from the ones that are not. The third factor that I mentioned is uh, finding management teams with a proven track record of capital allocation and companies with a sound corporate governance structure. Uh, And this is ever more important as we enter a tougher economic period, as you can imagine. The last thing I'd say on valuation is that in today's market, it is not difficult to find quality growth businesses that are trading at beaten down multiples. However, it is important to establish what a normalized level of earnings is for any growth stock, and then evaluate the multiple on that normalized base of earnings to get a true sense of the value that you're getting. Not difficult to find quality growth businesses trading at a discount. This
0: is a 180. Uh, if we were having this same podcast about 12 months ago, how quickly yeah. the tide turns! Oh
1: yeah, boy,
0: Hillary, um, talk about how you come through these types of sell-offs and identify some stronger franchises in the IT software space.
1: Great. Well, there's still some risk to estimates in a recession. Uh, most definitely. But we've tended to find a number of types of companies and or situations attractive in this environment. One would consist of quality names, which have already meaningfully lowered their forward expectations, where the management really took a hatchet to the outlook. (laughs) Uh, Salesforce.com might be one of those companies. And while there's incremental risk to estimates next year, at least the stocks have really started to interpolate that. Then there are the steady Eddie Garpy-ish growth names with very strong free cash flow support. And if I could combine those first two categories, the quality names that have slashed estimates with steady growth and strong free cash flow support, that's definitely a winning combination. Um, Then there are the names that can simply grow through it. Now, not as rapidly as they would have last year or otherwise, but there's still uh, companies that are able to grow really extremely quickly, either due to the product cycles, which Naveen mentioned, pricing power or unusually strong secular positioning, meaning they're just meeting demand, customer demand head on. Um, HubSpot might be an example of that. Um, then there are categories of companies with what I call self help potential, such as the ability to really expand margins in a slowing environment. Um, that would lead to higher cash flows and therefore future returns despite lower intermediate term growth. And then there are finally the companies that have been left for dead from a valuation perspective, quote unquote, where there's valuation support versus history and versus the group. In my groups, there's still fewer of these, and I will acknowledge that the definition of left for dead has been a bit of a moving target. Nonetheless, you know, we start with high single-digit free cash flow yields, which historically has been a good place to start for that. But overall, the guiding principles behind finding attractive investments in my space generally starts with names that have a better mousetrap, disruptive business models with hopefully a superior go-to-market capability, companies that are potentially broadening their product portfolio to becoming a true platform from a single product company, and potentially that have offerings that could enable them to take share and move up market as well as down. The up market always brings along higher ARPU or ASPs, a stickier customer base, higher retention, et cetera, et cetera, that all leads to higher returns. And we always look for great management teams who are constituent-centric, maniacally customer-focused, shareholder, and uh, especially employee-focused. And what's interesting, I would just interject in this environment, an interesting point to keep in mind is that we're in the type of environment where if companies don't adjust to the slowing macro and manage to thrive in that environment on their own, there are market mechanisms which may cause them to do so one way or another. For instance... There's growing activist activity. There's a very high level of private equity interest. There are even venture capitalists buying public equities today. And we haven't even begun to see the um, potential strategic acquirers enter the market. So uh, this activity likely helps to place an ultimate floor under valuations.
0: All right. So we talked a little bit about what you're looking for for strong growth franchises. I want to talk about the cloud here. But before I talk about the cloud, Uh, I know we've been talking about the cloud for a decade, it feels like, at this point, probably longer. Uh, I want to use a a quick baseball analogy. So with the World Series just wrapping up, the Astros have won. But, you know, investors and the people who follow the economy should probably be happy with that outcome. Because if you look at the last four World Series that a Philly-based team had won, it was the Philadelphia Athletics in 1929 and 1930 and then the Phillies in 1980 and 2008. All of those coincided with very deep recessions. So the cheese state curse probably won't hit us next year. We have a recession will be relatively shallow. But again, coming through back back to a baseball analogy, talking about the cloud and the accelerating growth that we're seeing in that space. What inning do you think that we are in from a cloud adoption standpoint? And is there still a long runway of growth there? I know, again, we've been talking about this for, for quite some time. Hillary, is there an inning that you would maybe ascribe to the the cloud adoption?
1: Sure. Well, let me let me think about an exact number while we're talking, but but I'll give you some context for the question, or for the answer. Cloud adoption, in my view, is still in relatively early innings. I'm not sure if it's one or three or two or four, um, but most customers have some cloud footprint. And most haven't yet migrated migrated the bulk of their data states or IT footprints to the cloud. In addition, most companies that already have a decent cloud footprint haven't yet derived the true benefit of being in the cloud, such as you know the value that higher level analysis and insights can bring to data and new workloads is pretty immense. Uh, and Microsoft estimates that only 20% of workloads in the cloud have actually gotten the true benefit of being in the cloud or of being truly cloud native and yes there's incremental in- investment required to get there. So in uh that's that's kind of cloud generally and that applies to hyperscale cloud environments in SaaS or software as a service which is basically applications in the cloud, it depends on the subsegment but most remain relatively underpenetrated or at least still have a solid runway of growth in front of them and we try to seek out the best among them when we're evaluating potential investments.
0: Naveen, do you have an inning that you think we're in with this cloud adoption?
2: Yeah, I'd say if I had to put an exact number, probably innings three of nine. Um, So depending on the source, (laughs) cloud adoption as percentage of enterprise workloads is somewhere in between 15 and 25% today. So there is clearly a long runway for growth ahead with double-digit growth possible, if not likely, at least until 2030. So this clearly remains one of the best secular growth markets out there. Uh, But the continued growth and penetration of cloud within IT spending may not be linear from here. So what I mean by that is several enterprise customers are entering a period of spend rationalization across their IT budgets. And this is causing the rate of growth of public cloud to slow going into 2023. We just started to see that with the third quarter. I think we'll actually see continued deceleration for at least the next two to three quarters. But as we exit the recession, businesses will likely lean on the cloud more than they did prior to the downturn, as it helps them convert CapEx dollars into OpEx. And when they do that, they could be more nimble, they can focus on their core strengths. Uh, We are also likely to see vendor consolidation, which benefits the incumbents, the largest players in the space, such as Amazon's AWS and Microsoft's Azure. So just uh, to summarize, we are likely to see slower growth in the major cloud vendors for the next six to 12 months, maybe a little bit longer, uh, depending on the depth of the recession. But we will likely see an acceleration in cloud adoption coming out of it. All right, so early innings in the cloud adoption. Um, and we, we touched
0: on you know, a couple of the largest players there Amazon, Microsoft, Google. Let's talk about Fang M, just generally speaking, right? Clearly dominated the markets over the last couple of years, and they're finally struggling, right? It's been a long time since we've been in this type of environment. So what's your outlook for these these mega caps? And maybe kind of looking down the road a little bit further, do you see any other areas that could be kind of the fang M as we look out over the next five to 10 years? Um, Naveen, I'll start off with you.
2: Sure. So uh, mega caps are right now dealing with the law of large numbers, uh, for one. So if you look at Google's business, they generated over $280 in gross revenue over the last 12 months. So just an incredible number to compound on top of. Uh, They're also seeing increased regulatory scrutiny after a decade of incredible value creation. But I think it's important to take a step back. And just put these companies in historical context. So as you know, most companies are happy to earn a few percentage points above their cost of capital. The returns on invested capital of Alphabet, Microsoft, Amazon, Facebook, and Apple have actually been in the 20 to 40% range over the past five years. And this is on tens of billions of dollars in capital invested. So never before has so much economic value been created and captured by such a small handful of firms. So this is uh, a truly, uh, you know, historically unprecedented, what's happening with the, these companies. But it's hard to paint the mega caps with the same brush, as they're all very different businesses. What they do have in common, if you're talking about Google search or the Apple, Apple iPhone, is that they are often indispensable in the lives of their consumers and users. They also have multiple sources of competitive advantage, each of which are hard to replicate individually, let alone as a whole. So, if we take Amazon as an example here, their logistics p- footprint, their wealth of first party customer data, and their technological leadership in the cloud are all multidisciplinary and deeply entrenched advantages. Their retail business today is actually unprofitable, but over the long run, there is no reason it cannot be a 4 to 5% EBIT margin business like a Walmart. Or even better, because there are actually high margin revenue streams like advertising uh, in that retail business. The cloud business for Amazon, meanwhile, uh, continues to have a multi-year lead over its competitors. So I would still look to Amazon as a compelling investment over a two to three year or longer time horizon, even though near term, their margins are under pressure. I would add on the regulatory side that we're seeing increasing scrutiny. Not just in the US, but more so in Europe, where uh, the Digital Markets Act is actually singling out dominant technology businesses in a way that is more punitive than prior regulatory episodes, such as GDPR a few years ago. Um, But ultimately, we evaluate each company on a bottom-up basis based on their competitive position, duration of growth, management team and their valuation relative to fundamentals. And the mega caps are not really any different. Now, are there any areas, uh, new areas of market leadership that you're expecting to see? Sure. So there definitely are a lot of interesting areas of, uh, of leadership and interesting markets that'll be more relevant over the next decade. So two examples would be uh, artificial intelligence and mobility each of which represent TAMs of hundreds of billions of dollars. And there are early beneficiaries here. NVIDIA and Uber are two examples of uh, each of, of beneficiaries in each of these markets. But it is too early to tell how these themes might play out over the next decade and whether these companies will necessarily emerge as the next mega caps, which often I think is only clear in retrospect. Hindsight is always twenty twenty, right? Absolutely. <laughs> uh,
0: Hillary, we, we covered a lot of ground there. Any other mega caps that uh, you think are, you know, well-positioned as we move through the other side of this hurricane, as Jamie Dimon would say?
2: <laughs> right.
1: Sure. Um, well, I continue to like Microsoft's long-term prospects. While the company just took down estimates to account for a weakening economy, and the stock remains pretty broadly owned still, which can lead to volatility, as we just saw recently— Uh, Microsoft remains a very strong number two and the largest net share gainer in public cloud, as well as in hybrid cloud, at least in absolute terms. Cloud is now over 50% of Microsoft's business and still growing very rapidly. While they're slowing, certainly uh, Microsoft has maintained a pretty rapid pace to date of consumption growth in the cloud. Microsoft also has their hands in a variety of interesting software markets, be it security low-code, no-code development, DevOps, automation, some of the same ones I mentioned earlier, enterprise applications, video games, modern databases, and this is even before we get to augmented reality and quantum computing and other exciting initiatives. But the key point here is that many of these businesses are poised to become much bigger businesses in the future, and they're likely to fuel Microsoft's next leg of growth in addition to and or beyond cloud. Uh, Traditional cloud. The company is also the best in my group at preserving margins, in my view. And as Naveen alluded to, all these companies have been investing at a rapid rate and they all stand to produce improving returns over time as their businesses scale, uh, scale even more than they've already scaled. So, in addition to the other part of your question, Jeff, I think there are a number of software companies which should be very interesting in the future and able to leverage strong secular positioning even beyond the current slowdown or or rather beyond the current slowdown. There are a number of security companies that are interesting. We've like CrowdStrike and Palo Alto, but there are a number of them uh, in development operations or what we call DevOps. We own disruptive vendor GitLab, and we also own GitLab's counterpart GitHub via our Microsoft ownership. And in data-centric industries with vendors such as Snowflake and MongoDB, they're rather interesting. In SaaS applications, we like a number of vendors there over the long term. Now, estimates do need to come down further across the group, but we're looking for opportunities to do precisely what Naveen said, to upgrade portfolios into the next cloud behemoth and the future household names among SaaS and data-centric vendors on weakness. And taking a two- to three-year view, some of these names are already getting rather attractive.
0: Now, this is amazing content from a fundamental analysis perspective. I'm just going to take a step back and look at it from just a broad picture standpoint. You know, I think that might be a good time to, to start thinking about growth, generally speaking, and being more constructive on equity markets. Now, today's the midterm elections. Um, once you get through the midterms, the year following, uh, you've had 18 observations since 1950, 18 positive market returns looking at the S&P 500. So, you've never had a down 12 months following. Average return is 15.1% percent, uh, so uh, well above the long-term averages. But also, what I think is important to note is if the higher 10-year treasuries has been a huge headwind to valuations and love for the space, uh, looking at the last five hiking cycles, usually the 10-year treasury peaks a couple of months prior to peak Fed funds. And with the market pricing peak Fed funds coming in March or maybe May, we're probably getting close to that point where the 10-year treasury may, resume, may stop its upward momentum and potentially Move down which may be a nice tailwind to the space uh, also there's an old story out there after a long decline news doesn't have to be good to push my prices up all you need is news that is less bad than expected and obviously with third quarter earnings expectations starting to move down as we've talked about we may be rapidly approaching that point So that's all the time that we have. Um, I just want to say, uh, Hillary and Naveen, thank you so much for sharing your insights with me and the listeners. I know I've personally taken a lot away from this conversation. so, So thank you for coming. Thank you so much. Enjoyed the conversation. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Nafim, very much. And thank you, everybody, for joining the podcast. Uh, we're going to have a podcast with The Outlook uh, in December, and then we'll have a number of different podcasts in 2023. So we'll hope that you'll be able to join us uh, as we move through the next 12 months. And as always, we welcome any questions, comments, suggestions that you can email us at podcast at Have a safe and healthy Thanksgiving in November, and we'll hope to have you back here soon. Take care. Please note the following. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. The opinions and views expressed in today's podcast are of the individual speakers as of November 8th, 2022, and may differ from other managers or the firm as a whole, and are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Any statistics reference have been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but the accuracy and completeness of this information cannot be guaranteed. Neither ClearBridge Investments nor its information providers are responsible for any damages or losses arising from any use of this information.